0: The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McEachan and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Greetings to good people everywhere. I'm Ben (laughs)
1: McKeckin. And I'm his overly expressive friend, Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 119
0: of The Big Picture for the week beginning August 7th. And coming up on today's show... French director Luc Besson. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Luc Besson. His latest sci-fi extravaganza, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Plus multiracial rom-com, The Big Sick. And we go off to save the planet again with an inconvenient sequel. G'day, Sam Robinson. How's your French pronunciation? Uh, bonjour, baguette. Oui, oui, Frenchy. <laughs> <laughs> you mean Luc Besson, Luc Besson. you just Luc say Besson. good
1: morning, you piece of bread?
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, I just tried right over, went straight past that. So I'm totally with you on that journey, Sam. And nice to see you. Oh, G'day. Oh, oh. No, we better stop that now. <laughs> stop that now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Ben McKeckin, what's in cinemas this week? Well, a few things, chaps, but I was also reflecting on how, um, before with the movie I'm about to uh, identify, how there's a lot of good choices around. In uh, 2017, I thought it didn't start so great. The first half of the year was a bit mm, lacklustre for films you could really strongly recommend. But at the moment, if you want to go see a movie, and uh, this particularly for adult viewers out there, there's everything from Dunkirk, Baby Driver, Spider-Man, Homecoming, and War for the Planet of the Apes. In cinemas now, mm. I think that's actually worth your dollar. Actually, I think it's worth saying, particularly
1: if you're one of the- those families that basically go, okay, we're going to do a couple of films a year, you know, and that's the story of many parents. This is the time to go out. I Sp- go.
0: American Spider-Man Homecoming is that film for families. Another film that opened at cinemas last week and Mark reviewed on the show was uh, last week was the trip to Spain. Go to the bigpicturewebsite.com and hear his thoughts on the latest Steve Coogan Rob Brydon road trip movie, this trip to Spain. And coming out of cinemas this week, guys, a movie called The Wall. I don't know if you've heard of this. Uh, it's got a cool younger British actor called Aaron Taylor Johnson, and I think he's a former WWE wrestler, John Cena, or maybe he's still wrestling. I don't know. He's not wrestling anymore but he is still John
1: Cena that's
0: right John Cena and they're playing two US soldiers who are pinned down um, by a sniper in Iraq it's uh, coming out this Thursday directed by a guy called Doug Lyman, who's done all kinds of movies including a new movie called American Made which is also coming out in about two weeks time so two mm. films in, in a month for Doug Lyman, one of them being The Wall and we're going to talk about it on the show next week what's on telly Mark mate uh, check out
1: Netflix for quite possibly the most unusual drama of the year atypical season one begins this week this comedy drama series follows sam an 18 year old on the autism spectrum as he goes out to try and find a girlfriend
0: this is a fictional show so it's
1: a fictional show if you think about like it's drama writing right into disability yeah and and so also a major part of the plot line is sam's mum and her own life-changing path as she sees her son try and take on and this sort of adult responsibility and relationship um and I guess it's a great timely piece when you think about we're wrestling in Australia with the whole NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and trying to help. Disabled people find a place within our our abled society. I feel like it's it's a great time to be looking at a show like this. Also, check out the ABC for the staff room. I'm not really sure how much is going to be revealed in the staff room. It's starting this uh, Saturday. I at always wanted m. to know what
0: was going on in the staff room but when I was you, at school. Didn't you know
1: already? I mean, they're just basically sitting around having cups of tea. Were they though? Like, <laughs> is,
0: and is that what the staff room is going to reveal? It is indeed. It's about three different
1: high schools across Australia. Which with
0: unfettered
1: access to both classroom and staff room.
0: Finally, I'm going to find out what they're doing. I and mean, you're right, they're probably I'm just drinking just cups of a tea. i just
1: drink a cup of tea. Who knows? All right, true or false time, Mark Hadley? Right, Luc Besson is a comic book aficionado. He's been a big fan of the French comic book Valerian and Laureline for years, and now he's turned it into his obsession, which is basically uh, Valerian, City of a Thousand Plants. We'll be talking about that soon, okay? But Luc Besson is really a guy who's just so obsessed over this property about Valerian, which is originally a comic book series, that he has done some pretty amazing things. His obsession has driven him to do what? A, write his own 600-page Bible covering all the ins and outs of the universe. okay? Or B, pen his own alien language, much like the divine language in The Fifth Element. Oh, that other Luc Besson film? Uh, There you go. Or C, named two out of his five children, (laughs)
0: Loreline and Valley, after the main characters in the film. All of those sound perfectly reasonable (laughs) for Luc Besson. (laughs) So I I am going with all three. Uh,
2: Well, we'll see after this. Alright, well for this week's What Your Kids Are Watching segment, we're going to take a look at a film parents will probably wish had come out during the school holidays, but we'll only be making it in the cinemas this coming week. It's called Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, and it's a sci-fi adventure fired by the considerable imagination, as we just talked about, of French director Luc Besson, and aimed squarely at high school audiences. It's a romp through space that will remind many of the fifth element and avatar centred on a love story that has Han and Leia written all over it. Best of all, though, it has a serious message about the need for forgiveness if anyone, alien or human, can hope to move forward together.
3: Welcome to Alpha. The city of a thousand planets. Where for hundreds of years every species has shared their knowledge and their intelligence with each other it's paradise amazing
1: well, basically, you've got a, a city which comprises all of the intelligent species of the known universe living together, floating in space. And now it's under threat by an infection, insidious infection that somehow started in the bowels of this floating city somewhere deep down. And, of course, you've got two agents who are responsible for finding out what's going on. Dane DeHaan plays Valerian, the key character, and, of course, his offsider sider Loreline is played by Cara Delevingne. Now, uh, they rush out into space to try and find what's going on and discover that in fact uh, the mystery digs so deep it undermines the government itself Um, great fun ahead to be honest it's a little uneven in its pace in places of valerian in the city of a thousand plants but is visually about as spectacular as Luc Besson could make it with all the special effects at his disposal um, just so you know though this is actually um, something that's rising out of something bigger in the past so uh, I don't know if in Australia we were ever really approached by Valerian the comics but you might know Asterix and Obelix you might know uh, Tintin it's kind of contemporary of that the French sort of comic phase uh, and also the whole Valerian thing contributed huge amounts to Star Wars did it yeah mm. so when you watch you'll see a space that looks very much like the Millennium Falcon. You'll see um, villains and characters and robots, and particularly Valerian and uh, Laureline, who look very much like Han Solo and Princess Leia. The whole rogue romance going on there.
0: Okay, Mark, what, what sort of Luc Besson film is this exactly? And uh, people might not recognise the name, but I'm sure they recognise films that Luc Besson's made. So he, he made The Fifth Element, as we mentioned. He also made Lucy a couple of years ago with Scarlett Johansson. Uh, he made the, the Lady a very very different film it was about um, Aung San Suu Kyi and uh, more famously in France decades ago he made films like uh, Nikita and Taxi and Subway like a whole bunch of movies largely known for action and big special effects and that kind of thing so Valerian what kind of film is it and particularly is it a safe one for kids well it is a family
1: film this one okay and in fact they've gone really hard to try and make this less violent than it needs than it could be Um, and certainly there are references if you like to physical relationships between characters but they're not really showing them there's all even the the clothing is controlled carefully I think about the only thing that's risque in this film is one sort of dance scene um, played by uh, Rihanna is actually starring in this film one she plays uh, a sort of a nightclub uh, come a, uh, entertainment worker industry and she uh, does a pole dancing scene. But at the same time, it's not terribly you know, lascivious, you know, in the way they execute it. So it is safe and that's one of the things I, I think when I was you know with the introduction we are just talking about how it might have been better if this came out in school holidays mm. because I think this would have been a safe choice for families with older teens um, it's also got a bunch of other things like K-pop star Chris Wu is in it that might not mean much to you but for our Asian listeners it's going to mean a, a big deal um, it also basically will suit anyone who likes The Fifth Element or that sort of stuff it's very good
0: Speaking of The Fifth Element which yeah I think to international audiences probably the most famous Luke Besson film that movie that starred Bruce Willis dabbled in big themes like overcrowded cities and soulless corporations and dispossessed races is Valerian doing a similar thing Absol- or anything like it? Absolutely. Um, one of the interesting
1: things about this film is that you'll, you'll, there's a bit of an Avatar feel about it, okay? but And Lupuson's on record for saying that he didn't think that James Cameron actually went far enough in making <laughs> political statements in, in Avatar. Oh, right.
0: I thought he was talking about the ponytails <laughs> okay. and all that sort of thing and, and the well, skin. Well, you know, and, yeah. there's,
1: a, there's a whole dispossessed native race in Avatar and that's gone Written quite large in um, Valerian City of a Thousand Planets, uh, and so uh, there's a whole sense of uh, multiculturalism and races coming together and trying to bond together in the City of a Thousand Planets. But there's also real interesting commentary, uh, age appropriate, on sexual slavery, uh, and so the oh. people who have been bought and are tied into an entertainment industry and can't get out, and also Western imperialism, just the idea that um, cultures not owning up to their own guilt, you know, for what they've done to native races and things like that um, in the the aim for supremacy. Uh, and so Lupus on is not held back at all, and yet yeah, it does get a little ponderous in parts, but I think because there's so much good action going on, you will find that it'll flow quite neatly and the kids will just be really sort of thrilled by the spaceships and might pick something up along the way.
2: You talk a lot about the political side of this film. Is there anything spiritual to take away from yeah. Valerian?
1: Yeah. Do you remember the fifth element where Lupus on went really big on the fifth element was basically love? You know, that oh, was what was yeah. going to... Oh, yeah. I'm sorry if I just spoil that for you. Some boilers. A bit. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> there I go again. But look, um, <laughs> so... He does have a very, very, I would say continental you know or uh, idea of love. And love breaks all the rules, love disobeys laws, love you know for the sake of love, you can do anything. to be honest, and I'll be clear about this. I think that's probably a better definition of obsession than it is love. Um, but he has a fantastic idea of forgiveness right through the film and, and this is one line where um, one of the um, the, the people who have actually learnt to forgive are the people who are most abused. You know, oh. and, so, and they're the ones who are actually saying, how can you expect to face the future if you don't first deal with your past, which is a line that every Christian would like to have ringing in their children's ears. You know, you've got to deal with your past, otherwise there is no future. So I think it's fantastic for that, for that alone.
2: Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets is rated M for science fiction violence. It stars Cara Delevingne, Dane, uh, Dane DeHaan, Clive Owen and Rihanna, plus a host of cameos and releases nationally on August 10. Now, true or false answer, Mark Hadley.
1: Okay, so Lupuson was obsessed with this whole property, Valerian City of a Thousand Planets. What did he do? Did he write his own 600 page Bible covering every in and out of the universe? Did he pen his own alien language? In fact, he literally did that for the fifth element. But, you know, did he pen his own alien language for this film? Did he name two out of his five children, because he's married four times, um, Loreline and Valley?
0: Which was it? I'm still going with all three. I think Luke Baston's such a massive fan of this comic <laughs> book. He loves he just went for it. Renaming it. his children? I'm gonna say A. A that you're saying he penned his six hundred page
1: Bible, you would be correct. Sam, you're oh, on a roll. Well played, hey, Sam. Hey, is that like two hey, weeks hey. running you've it actually is. picked it? It is. There you go. Well yes, he actually wrote six hundred pages worth of this and this was when he was a teen. Mm. You know, all, all about so this is how long he's been carrying that torch.
2: Well, coming up on The Big Picture, we're all going to be walking on a dream and Ben will diagnose why The Big Sick is something you will want to catch. Welcome back.
0: All right, chaps, we're up to soundtrack section of the show and we're very soon going to talk about this new romantic comedy, The Big Sick. This song is taken from that film, The Big Sick, and you can tell my voice is getting gentler and gentler because we're about to walk on a dream. Yeah, blokes, that was Walking on a Dream from Australian electronic or electronica duo Empire of the Sun. And also their debut album back in 2008 was called Walking on a Dream.
2: Imagine you're from a different racial and religious background to the person you are dating. Then imagine that you break up over those differences only for that person to immediately go into a medically induced coma and then you meet their parents. <laughs> mm. Oh, good good word. <laughs> New rom-com The Big Sick tells just such a story and Ben discovered that this critically acclaimed relationship flick is funny, moving, and challenges us about who we expect other people to be. Are
4: you judging Pakistan's next hot model?
3: You know how we have arranged marriage in my culture?
4: Oh, my God, I'm so stupid. Can you imagine a world... In which we end up together. I don't know.
3: I'm looking for Emily Gardner. She was checked in tonight. There's an infection. We put her in a medically induced coma. Coma. You should call her family. Thank you. Come on. We're going to handle things from here. I think I'm just going to wait anyway. You guys
0: broke up. I'm not sure why you're here.
3: I'm just going to stay for a second.
1: Okay, so I've actually heard that this is based on a true story, which sounds a bit Far-fetched, really.
0: Yeah, that's right. It is. It is based on one. It's it's somewhat embellished, but it's uh, it's how a comedian Kamal Nanjani, who's starring in the show as himself, Kamal, and his wife Emily Gordon. She's not in the movie. She's played by an actress called Zoe Kazan. But how Emily and Kamal got together, and it did involve a medically induced coma, and it does involve the fact that clearly, and if for anyone who's seen Kamal up on screen, you'll know this is a Pakistani bloke. He's probably most famous at this point for the TV show Silicon Valley. But I think he's going to kick on particularly off the success of this the big 6 one of the best reviewed movies Of this year, Uh, and and I can see why. Like it's a it's a a great romantic comedy uh, insofar as uh, even when you throw up all those different ideas that uh, like that Sam just mentioned that uh, they're from different backgrounds, and then this medically induced coma comes, and then the parents happen, and etc. etc. It sounds very novel and interesting, and yeah, thankfully for a romantic comedy in 2017, it does some different things while also you know there's plenty of stuff that it does that's formulaic and you know where it's going, but. The, the You're not going to tell us he gets the girl. This, I'm not anyway. going to tell you. I'm not <laughs> okay. going to tell you what happens. But really, what happens within when uh, when Emily is in the coma, I think, is some of the best part of this film and the interaction that Kamal has with her parents, who are played excellently by Holly Hunter and Ray Romano. Great, great actors, and they they do a terrific job. Um, as the whole thing went along, I was very moved. I found it very credible. I liked how the movie sort of tells you that it doesn't always work out the way you want it to all the time. And it's funny. It's really quite funny. But of course,
1: racism is going to play a central part in the film. You've got Pakistani versus Caucasian. You've got different sort of religious backgrounds. Is that the case?
0: Yeah, I don't know if i describe it as Pakistani versus Caucasian, Mark, but Pakistani uh, people and Caucasian culture are sure. definitely there. And, and you're right. Clashing and in some Clashing, that's right. And, and going to head-to-head somehow. But the, the racism that comes up on screen is coming from a variety of angles, and it's almost, I'm trying to choose my words carefully, but interesting racism. It's provocative racism. Um, sometimes the provocation is like, should I? I'm provoked by, should I actually laugh at this or not? But the angles they're coming from, I think, are quite different. So you get reverse racism, and a, as in the Pakistani family in this, Kamal's family are often racist towards Americans, like Caucasian Americans. Usually it's the other way around in movies and, and TV shows. There's also also the awkward and poss- awkward possible racism. Ray Romano is this excellent scene uh, among many uh, around the hospital where Kamal uh, and Emily's parents are kind of getting to know each other and, and trying to work out which, which other stands. Ray Romano does a great job as a dad bumbling his way trying to talk about nine eleven with a guy from Pakistan and trying to not make that sound racist. Mm. Even though the words coming out of his mouth are, I've been waiting to talk to someone like you about Um, (laughs) 9-11. That kind of stuff goes through the big sick. Um, But it's often more subtle than it like hitting you over the head. And there's also racism about your own race, kind of within your race. So Kamal and his brother often are making jokes about their own people, particularly about things like arranged marriage, which is massive in the big sick and is a big thread going through the film about um, who determines what relationship you should be in and that kind of thing. So there's a level of critique going on in the racism as well Mm. in the big sick, which Again, makes it um, an, an interesting beast when it comes to a romantic comedy. Yeah, you're not dealing with just KKK stuff, are you? You're actually no. dealing with something that we might all experience no, in great degrees. It, it, yeah, again, I think it's coming from different angles, uh, and it's also g- great to see a Pakistani American family as the kind of central, one of the central elements of a film. It's uh, it's highly unusual, and so it's another standout feature, I think, of the Big Sick. Religion seems like a pretty big factor
2: in the storyline, Ben McKechnie. How does the film handle it?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you noticed that, Sam, because. Uh, I should have emphasised this a little bit earlier on that um, that Kamal's family is Pakistani Muslim and their religious beliefs come through quite strongly in this relationship movie. So one of the second layers in this film is the relationship between parents and children. And again, at various points, I was like significantly moved. I was more, I was tearing up more than I expected to. In 2017, in a romantic comedy, I like I usually go oh, in. You big softie. Yeah, I usually go in like not expecting too much. But there were different points as this film went along, and largely around the relationship between the, the parents and their children mm. that I was really quite struck by. Um, so yes, religion does play a significant factor in the storyline, and and again in a way that you might not expect. And it's actually around expectations that what stood out to me. So Kamal's parents expect their children to believe the same things that they believe, and that they're really quite like. Strong about that, to the point where they they basically seem not so interested in what their kids are about or who they are, they all they want to know is that you believe what we believe now there are significant significant differences between Islam and Christianity, but what I took away from watching these parents and the way that they were trying to share their beliefs with their children struck me in terms of I want my daughters to know every day of their life, the love of God and the love of Jesus. I want that for them desperately, but am I going to impose that upon them? Thankfully, the big sick doesn't in any way suggest that all Muslim parents are doing this, but I was struck by these particular parents and thinking about my own situation. How do I want to relate to my own children? God relates to us through Jesus. Jesus is an excellent role model of not imposing upon people, but going to them lovingly, but clearly about who he is and how we should relate to God. I figure... I shall model my own approach on that. And thankfully, The Big Sick and the parents up on screen reminded me about that in my own life. So as you can hear, gentlemen, I'm a big fan of The Big Sick. I'm strongly recommending it. The Big Sick stars Kamal
2: Nunjani, uh, Zoe Kazan, Holly Hunter and Ray Romano. It's rated M for course language
0: and sexual references and is in cinemas now. Gents, over at insights.uca.org.au, you can find loads of reviews of the latest releases, including of The Big Sick and other re- movies that we talk about here on The Big Picture. Insights can offer a different perspective on those. There's also a lot of creative content at the moment on insights.uca.org.au. You can check out profiles about Australian photographer Ken Ken Duncan, or comedian Hannah Boland. All of that is over there at Insight's website. Coming up on The Big
2: Picture, a real-life couple join us to reveal what it's like to cross cultural boundaries for love, and Mark will take on Saving the World and an Inconvenient Sequel. Welcome back to the show. Well, before the break, Ben took a gander at the new romantic comedy The Big Sick, a story that centres on a couple who come from completely different cultures, and it's based on a true story. But how true? Don't we live in a multicultural society? Do mixed-race couples actually have to negotiate a hidden minefield of cultural rules to take a run at marriage? Or well, to help us understand what it's like to have two worlds collide, we've invited on the show Pete and Audrey. Hello. Hello.
1: Hi. Guys. So let me begin by saying now, Audrey, you're Burmese
3: Chinese. That's correct. And Pete, you're not. I'm definitely not. Okay, can you give us a bit of a picture of your family? Sure. My, uh, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Sydney, but my family are very English. So we, we come from a very English background. And uh, yeah, Christmas, for example, very big kind of hot uh, meals that we have. In the uh, appropriate
1: roasts with t- cups of tea afterwards. Is Absolutely. That Christmas to you?
4: No. Uh, so I grew up in the suburbs of Sydney as well, but my uh, I'm a second-generation migrant. Uh, and uh, we had no Christmas tra- traditions at all. We just... Um, Watched everybody else's pretty much, so yeah,
0: okay, now, guys, when you brought your two separate worlds together when you got married how how difficult was that for you, particularly from
3: like a cultural perspective? Uh, I think for me um. See, a lot of Audrey's extended family don't actually speak English, and uh, their their language is Cantonese. <laughs> and I don't speak any Cantonese, and so we used to wow. Have these those b- dinner table conversations just must have run on forever. <laughs> well, we'd ha- we'd have these huge, big kind of things where my family were there and, and Audrey's family were there, and my mum would go, "Go talk to Audrey's grandmother." And I'm like, "She doesn't speak English. She don't speak Cantonese. <laughs> how, how am I going to do?" I just go talk to her, and uh, and I'd I go and find an aunt, and and we'd get a translator kind of thing going. But it was yeah, it was a little weird that way. Yeah,
4: I mean, my grandmother, she didn't. speak... She lived with us and she didn't speak much English. The only English that she learnt was from the comedy company in the 80s. That Con was a the great fr- show. Oh, yeah, sure. Con the Frutera. So all she ever said was, beautiful, and couple of and that was it, and yeah. hello. So, yeah. you know.
0: <laughs> That's definitely a bridge over cultural differences. Con yes. the Frutera. Con the Frutera the, multi- yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Was, was it tense?
1: Were there times where in which this, these, these um, struggles actually rose into difficulties?
4: No, it's more awkwardness i think um it's it was more um look, most of my family spoke English, uh, but there were sort of like I said, my grandparents didn't speak much English, and there was just awkwardness, I would say, and just those awkward pauses so if you can hmm. picture um pete's family uh a very uh they wait for conversation to end before it starts. And my family generally are loud and boisterous. And so when you have the element of language barrier thrown in top on top of that and Pete's parents are wanting to be polite and wait, but there's nothing coming out from the other end, it's <laughs> sort of
1: just awkward, awkward. Was there a religious dimension to trying to bring the two of you together? Uh,
4: no. Thankfully, uh, my uh, my. Family uh, were Christian, so oh, okay.
1: So they didn't have sort of a, a Buddhist tradition or anything like
4: that. Uh, they did, uh, but that was quite quite a while ago. So uh, by the time that uh, Peter and I met, uh, my most of my family had become Christians.
0: To be very happy, Pete, you didn't have to learn anything about justice, or no, no, I was
3: quite happy about that. So yeah, that was good. Yeah.
0: So, guys, finally, what unites you as a couple? Because we are imagining that across these cultural differences, there must come awkward moments, difficult moments, as you've been discussing. But mm-hmm.
3: what unites you? What brings you together? We well, see. I think that's that's the great thing about the Christian faith is that that creates a, a, a different culture altogether. So and that's a very um, for me that's a very clearly defined culture. So we can actually work out, well, how do we parent our kids? What decisions do we make as family? That sort of thing. We can actually go to the Bible and actually see what that is and that's that's been really helpful in uniting things together.
1: Wow, that's great. Pete and Audrey thanks for being on the show. Thank
2: thanks you.
4: For
2: The Doco and Inconvenient Truths probably one of the few documentaries that have entered the memory of modern mainstream moviegoers. In it, former American Vice President Al Gore warned the world about the perils of global warming and picked up an Oscar along the way. Eleven years later, Gore is back for more in his follow-up, and inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power. In it, the world's foremost environmental warrior delivers the good news and the bad news about our progress on keeping the Earth cool. But the rising temperatures have now made way for a rising moral debate.
3: It's time
0: to put America first. That includes a promise to cancel billions in climate change spending. Our
3: plan will end the EPA. The next generation would be justified in looking back at us and asking, what were you thinking? Couldn't you hear what the scientists were saying? Couldn't you hear what Mother Nature was screaming at you? This movement is in the tradition of every great movement that has advanced humankind. Well, an Inconvenience
1: sequel fills in the last 11 years, both in terms of the continuing disasters related to climate change and Al Gore's personal political fight against global warming. In fact, viewers could be forgiving for basically thinking this was a biopic about Al Gore and had nothing to do with the environment at all. Um, You get to see Al Gore in gumboots, Al Gore in ski parkers, all sorts of Al Gore moments. (laughs) At times, Al Gore shares as much about his emotional struggles as he does about his environmental ones. At others, the topic's more about his efforts to train up an army of mini Al Gores who will go out there and preach the good news about the battle ahead. I mean, I think that the, the film is literally disfocused or defocused I think that's the right word and basically um, you're not really sure what we're on about we're not even terribly sure we're on about science or the environment or anything like that until we finally hit the Paris Climate Change Conference which sharpens the film towards the end 2016 oh Al Gore saves the day in that too Um, and then (laughs) the documentary is basically it is it is literally uh, an Al Gore fest Um, and it is very American too you know Al Gore saying stuff about this great nation has an opportunity Opportunity. And so everyone instantly oversees sitting there, they're going, well, I guess we're just the 53rd state or something like that. Um, but for all of that, the call to arms is really quite clear. Yet again, um, it is an inconvenient call. The world is dying and we need to save it.
0: Um, I haven't seen an inconvenient truth for a while, but I didn't remember it being so focused on Al Gore. Instead, I think it was filled with more kind of sciencey goodness for the socially conscious film goer. So if this one sounds a little bit more focused on Al Gore, but an inconvenient sequel does it also have Loads of sciencey goodness for the socially conscious filmgoer. Not as much as you think. Oh. I mean, literally, the film. As look, it's got science in it, but it's almost
1: it's almost moving on as if the argument has been made. Okay, um, global warming is going on, and the planet is perishing, and it gives a bit of evidence of what's how that's continuing to happen. Um, but it is increasingly moral. The idea is that the climate change um, has given rise to all sorts of moral crises. So the economic crisis in London, in India war in Syria is being tied down. Hang, to, hang on, what? So he's yeah, yeah, linking the, the whole Middle climate Eastern change crisis. To, yeah,
0: is, and is that persuasive on, on screen? Well, he, I'm not sure I've heard people make he, that. He case He makes a
1: very passing reference to um, an 800-year drought in the Medi- you know, high drought in the Mediterranean. That's basically heated up temperatures in people. Uh, and so people are quite you know their their economies are crashing, and so they 're busy going and invading other countries it, it it look he makes um global warming responsible for global terrorism it, it is um It is a oh. very big argument
0: that's being made, yeah, I think it goes a little bit over the top at times. Where's he getting his moral guidance from, Al Gore? Well, you'd think the Bible, too.
1: I mean, like, he's actually...
0: Oh, he does? It's
1: resplendent with biblical references, and then you watch carefully what happens, okay? So he's, Al Gore's talking about floods that are, like, of Noah-like proportions, and the nightly news, he says, is a nature hike through the book of Revelation. <laughs> right. You know, uh, all the sorts of things are going wrong. And then he even goes as far as to take this line from Deuteronomy. God said, I lay before you a choice between life and death, Therefore, choose life. Right. But, so, but
0: how does he use that? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. Un, yeah.
1: Unlike God, who is referring to the choice between living through him or rejecting him and thereby dying eternally, um, Al Gore is talking about the choice of God's place before us is saving the planet or not saving the planet. So you better choose to save the planet.
2: So so is he drawing on the Bible? Yeah. Inspiration, not yeah. so much. Is, no, no. no. He, what he's doing is I'm he's confused. taking the
1: Bible and it, and he's using it as a very convenient uh, uh, platform, like many politicians would, for cha- you know swapping out the message. But uh, not
0: just politicians, though. Mark, like, well, plenty of us do that. Like, I, I used to do that a lot. I, I'm, pr- I'm probably still and guilty of it now, but I try not to. But I used to do that a lot when I was younger. Like, I just take bits of the Bible that seemed cool to me or sounded all right, and just use them, even if I didn't know what they meant. Exactly, you throw in a line like, "Well, doesn't the Bible say?" Yeah, you know, something like yeah. that. And um, and this is
1: literally what he is doing, and he is surreptitiously replacing the gospel. I mean, I I don't want to um, sound the alarm bells or anything like that, but he's literally preaching an environmental gospel. Uh, there is a, The crisis that is facing the world is not one of sin or our rejection of God. It is global warming. Okay, I'm not saying there's not a global um, crisis in terms of, of climate. I'm not a climate change denier. Um, the science is too obvious. But at the same time, uh, to say that the environmental crisis is is the biggest crisis that is facing humanity today is actually to fly in the face of the Bible. You see, I mean, I think people forget Mm. that the global crisis that we face is literally a result of sinfulness. You know, it is a symptom of us rejecting God. If we had been stewarding creation the way that God wanted us to in the first place, if we'd been living under his rule and living generously towards other people and living self-sacrificing lives, we wouldn't have the global uh, environmental crisis we've got today. But I think what happens is that um, Gore pushes the whole moral debate uh, so that it now centers on um, the biggest moral responsibility for us is to take care of the planet. And that makes us the saviors. It puts the choice in our hands. Now we don't need Jesus anymore. Now what we've got is a, a crisis, however big, that we're capable of saving. And that puts us in prime position for being the heroes I think that's a problem. I don't want to say there's no environmental process, but I've got to say I was pretty disappointed with an
0: Inconvenient Sequel. Okay, then. But if you're still interested, <laughs> interested in checking it out, an Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, stars, as Mark just mentioned, basically just Al Gore. But you do get to see him in a nice range of attire, such as gumboots. It's rated PG for mild themes and releases at a number of venues from this coming week. So please go and check your Google Tron.
2: All right. Well, coming out on the big picture, we dig into the vault of movie history to find one movie that can unite us all before Ben tackles the top five race relations movies. It's not going to be controversial. Not at all. Not at all. all. Not, not at all. No, not. G'day. Welcome back. Now, you probably worked this out already, but today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by the theme of let's all bring it in for a group hug. <laughs> it has it has
0: been? What, what do you mean?
2: Well, Valerian focuses on uh, intergalactic multiculturalism. Okay, yep. The big stick keeps its racial tolerance closer to home. Oh, and yeah. An yeah. inconvenient sequel basically calls on the entire human race to unite and sort itself out. Oh, uh, yeah, let's get in for a group hug. Yeah, that's it. Okay, I'm with you. So, for The Vault this week, we asked Insights reviewer Melissa Stewart to pick a classic movie that has the same uniting the world vibe. And the great unifying force is... Independence Day.
0: Right on. Independence Day. That was out, I think, what, 1996? Is about Yeah, about 20 years ago? <laughs>
2: yep,
5: like a few months before I was born. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a few... Yep. It was definitely a few months after I was born. It's like been about half my lifetime, I think, when that... Anyway, I won't bore you with the details of how old I am. So, why have you picked this? I'm taking it you've actually seen it in your, in your lifetime, yeah? And what did you think of it?
5: Um, so, I've seen it a few times, and it's literally just an easy watch. It's got everything in it. Okay, firstly, it's got Will Smith, who was in his prime at that time. And it's got some family themes. It's got comedy. It's got the world ending, aliens, action. It's got everything.
0: And now, Melissa, you might not have known this when you were a baby, but back in 1996, it was a time when blockbusters weren't like we have blockbusters now. Now blockbusters just seem like, well, every week you expect a massive movie to come out and we kind of shrug our shoulders about special effects and things blowing up. When Independence Day started dropping trailers of the White House being destroyed by an alien invasion that made people sit up and take notice and I'm with you like it's it's fun and cheesy and Will Smith is great and all that kind of thing but Independence Day was a massive landmark sci-fi special effects movie it was it was colossal it was huge I'm glad to hear that someone who was a baby at the time <laughs> and didn't get caught up in all of it I still likes watching it. Were well, there particular moments, though, in Independence Day that really stand out to you?
5: Yeah, the when the alien wraps around the guy's neck, the mad scientist's neck.
0: Oh, Jeff Goldblum, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
5: The aliens, like, even though I could see, like, the special effects weren't, like, as great as they are now, they was still a bit, like, freaky, not as scary.
0: Did you see the sequel last year's Independence Day resurgence? I did. Would you in any way, shape or form, Melissa, recommend that to people? No. That's the correct answer (laughs) because 1996 Independence Day is a bit of a B-grade classic. That sequel, on the other hand, not so much. Now, you've chosen this as an example of a movie that's uniting the world or uniting people. I haven't seen it for a while. I don't think Independence Day unites the whole world, but it at least attempts to unite one country, which allegedly is united, the United States of America. That's right, isn't it?
5: Yeah, that's correct.
0: And how do they go about that? And what about that stands out to you as a really good example of a movie about uniting people?
5: Well, I think what the movie did really well was it showed people of all different walks of life come together, put aside their differences and see like a common enemy that was threatening their whole humanity. And they chose to prioritise humanity above anything else.
1: I love that, uniting over our opposition to aliens. Okay, <laughs> thanks, Melissa, from Insights. is a great support of the show. Also, another great support of the show is EternityNews.com.au. And uh, over there, you'll find all sorts of big-picture videos that you can download and have a look at, particularly my favourite, I'm a climate change denier. Okay. Repeat that, Mark. I'm a climate change denier.
0: Well, you need people need to go to the people video to, to check out what, what you on earth you're on clickety about. clickety, clickety clickbait okay. <laughs>
1: plus, plus, wall-beating Australian Christian leader, Darlene Check in an intimate interview with Eternity.
2: Eternitynews.com.au All right, it is time for the gift that
0: keeps on giving, the top five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so true. And this week, gents, we've got the top five race relations. Mm. Uh, Earlier in the show, a lot of our reviews, the big, sick Valerian, etc., dealt with re- relations between different races. Um, I thought though to like limit the scope of this list, I'd try to find more positive examples. There's plenty of negative examples. Oh, so not,
1: not like Mississippi burning. Not like <laughs> okay. Mississippi
0: burning. Mississippi burning will not feature on this list. Uh, instead, I've tried to pick more positive examples. So here we go. Five. 2008's Gran Torino, the film that Clint Eastwood, I think he directed and definitely starred in mm. as the crotchety, uh, elderly, racist Korean War veteran who basically hates all Asian people. And then when a young Asian guy steals his car, well, it, it, all of this is basically sounding like a, a caller who's calling up Cranky on Talkback Radio at this point um, and, you know, whinging about the, the youth and Asian, uh, Asian folks and all that kind of thing. But... Gran Torino, without trying to give too much away if you haven't seen it, demonstrates what can happen to someone's horribly racist views when they actually meet someone for real and get to know them, that they're actually a person. So the, the, the weight of your horrible prejudice can actually be eroded by getting to know someone as a human being. I seriously wish I had not seen Gran Torino so that I could watch it again. You know, oh, like for the first
1: time. It's that's one a of great my, review. It's one of my favourite films. If you haven't seen Gran Torino, that's a brilliant night. Go watch that. And that's just number five. Four.
0: You know, gents, uh, like Melissa Stewart from Insights just reminded us, um, often aliens try to smash us. They just try to come here and take our land and our, our planet and everything. And our jobs. Unlike 1982... <laughs> Unlike Nun A2's ET, where race relations between <laughs> an alien and us were really quite sweet and gentle and lovable. Look what happened. And that guy was, um. For the was, most part. For the most part. And particularly with, with he and Elliot and Elliot's family, there's this the central relationship at the core of ET is the one I'm really focusing on. Um, even though, uh, you know, ET didn't know what the heck he was here for, abandoned, like, lonely, lost, etc., etc. Um, I think the film is a nice demonstration of even if you come from different ends of the galaxy Aww. you can still, you know, drink Cokes and eat M&Ms and, and go you're not over flying bicycles. And unite over flying bicycles. <laughs> 3 Have you guys seen an Australian film from 2007 called Lucky Miles? No. No. That is the answer I expected and I think most people would say the same thing and that is a horrible crime. Because <laughs> <I'm
1: sorry. laughs> i 'm sorry guilty as young.
0: charged it was released released ten ten years ago, and yeah in in the space of that ten years, I am still amazed at how underrated it was at the time, how little seen it was, and how people still don 't really talk about it, um, given that um, in and around that time and and ever since uh boat people, immigration, refugees, our relationships with people um of that sort of status, asylum seekers, et cetera, has been a big deal in Australia for like the last two decades. And Lucky Miles drills into that situation. And it's actually a bit of a road trip comedy, if you can believe it, about... Uh, some Iraqi and Cambodian refugees who wash up in kind uh, of northern Australia and they've come here illegally and then they discover that what they've been promised doesn't actually you know, turn out to be the case and for the rest of the movie have to work out how they're going to survive. In this new land, why I picked Lucky Miles as a positive example of race relations is similar to Grand Torino, where um, out of a situation that often is depicted, particularly uh, like just look at the news on a daily basis, it is so divisive and negative and hostile. Lucky Miles, increasingly as the film goes along, demonstrates that when people actually come together as people, forced in this situation by circumstance to adjust and adapt, they they actually come to understand each other a lot better hmm. as people. And Lucky Miles is a really good demonstration that I highly recommend it from 2007. Two. And here's the bit where I... Uh, now you're going to jump the tracks. Like, uh, yep, <laughs> because I'm um, going from ET of like, you know, alien races to a combination of a race being an athletics race... And different different races, <laughs> particularly the most prominent races in the New Testament, Jewish and Gentile. I'm talking about chariots of fire from 1981. This wow. is your
1: idea you get, of race race relations.
0: relations. You got two. You got a Christian runner and a Jewish runner. This really famous Oscar-winning story, based on a true story of these athletes who competed in the 1924 Paris Olympics. As soon as I got handed top five race relations, I was like working hard. I'm like, how am I going to get an actual race into this? I thought about cannibal run. I thought about um the cops didn't get on so well with the, the races. No, like. I I really got <laughs> th- close to that or well, smoking the Bandit. I was like gonna go close on that race across the country that uh, Bert Reynolds has in the late seventies. Anyway, Chariots of Fire is a way better choice for this for this list. Have you guys seen Chariots of Fire in See, Living Memory? I I have, and it's really weird. Does it still stand up because I haven't seen it for a while? Oh, look, I, I think it doesn't. No, <laughs> like, really? No, look, I think the weird thing is it's it's a bit it's a bit
1: quaint or a bit tweet you know when we look back now um, but but the weird thing is it was I remember seeing it when I was young in a country atmosphere. It was like one of those weird things where um the film was so popular that people actually had screenings at their homes. Like they would have rent projectors and people would come around and watch it and that's when I first saw it. Um and in that culture at that time, it really made a great deal of sense. But I think it's not that the co- the, the great lessons in, in it don't make sense anymore. It's the fact that we've almost become jaded and we don't believe that that this sort of um, choice would be made—that people would actually choose to put their beliefs before, um, you know, their their sporting aspirations. And
0: that is a really good note to point towards what's coming in at number one, because as much as Chariots of Fire does d- demonstrate someone who puts the glory of God first, one. 2014 Selma. The film about oh, wow. Martin Luther King and yeah. uh, uh, very famous events uh, around what he was fighting for in the civil rights movement in the 60s in America, particularly focused on this famous march for voting rights in 1965 in Selma, mm. Alabama. Uh, as Mark said right at the start, Mississippi Burning's not on, the, on this list. Uh, even things like In the Heat of the Night or Do the Right Thing, all these American films about race relations between black and white America could have picked loads of them. Instead, Selma stood out to me. Uh, one reason is because I love the film. It's thought it was fantastic. But seeing Martin Luther King up on screen, I find him a very commendable role model of the ultimate role model, Jesus. Now, now Martin Luther King is a flawed man, and they show that in Selma. But I think what Martin Luther King actually lived out in front of people was trying to love one another as I have loved you, turn the other cheek, do unto others. These teachings of Jesus, this man, uh, in, in spite of great odds, across horrible race relations in, a, in an entire country, let alone around the world, stood up and tried to display Jesus to people and that's powerful
3: mm. Mr. President in the south there have been thousands of racially motivated murders we need your help Dr. King this thing is just going to have to wait it cannot wait you got one big issue i got 101 somewhere it is
4: here is the next great battle
3: Sam was the place and they ready
4: Dr. Dr. King
3: I tell you, that white quite can hit. Well, that's all
2: the time we have for this week. But coming up on The Big Picture next week, theatre on the big screen with
0: who's afraid of a Virginia Woolf? Diane Keaton and Brendan Gleeson romance their way through Hampstead. And the Born Identity director, Doug Liman, takes us to war on Afghanistan in the war. Next week, I'll be Ben McKeckin. And I'll still be Mark Hadley. See you then. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production. Sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world.